two Barclays analysts. One hot topic, all sides explored. This is The Flip Side. The Flip Side is a new podcast series featuring lively debate between two Barclays research analysts, taking opposing viewpoints on timely topics of importance to economies and businesses around the globe. Welcome to episode 10 of The Flip Side, a podcast series from Barclays Research. My name is Jeff Melly, and I'm the global head of research at Barclays. I'm joined today by Ajay Rajadax, our head of macro research. Thanks for joining me, Ajay. Great to be here, Jeff. Today, we're going to debate whether U.S.-China trade tensions pose a material risk to the U.S. economy. We're going to discuss the direct and indirect effects of rising tariffs, what we can learn from some of the recent stock market volatility, and the critical role that leadership of new technologies is playing in these heightened trade tensions. I'm going to argue that the economic risks to the U.S. are overstated and that there might actually even be longer-term benefits. Ajay will take the side that these are real concerns and the potential for economic harm cannot be dismissed. So let's get into it. I'm going to start with the direct economic impact. In my view, the direct economic costs from a trade war are actually pretty low. We estimate that a full 25% tariffs on everything that China sells to the U.S. might cost something like 20 to 30 basis points of growth in the U.S. Given that the U.S. economy has been growing between 2 and 3% over the last several years, that's not nothing, but I think it is actually pretty easily manageable given the momentum that the U.S. economy has. The reason why those direct economic effects are so low is because the U.S. is a pretty closed economy. Trade only makes up something like 15% of GDP. What happens domestically within the U.S. borders actually ends up being a lot more important for the strength of the economy. I am not so quick to discount these direct effects, Jeff. You're right, in percentage terms at a macro aggregate level, they might seem small, but remember, the pressures would be concentrated in specific industries. They would not be diffused equally throughout the economy. So as just one example, take the U.S. retail sector. It's already been under huge pressure from the likes of Amazon and Walmart. Store closures reached a 10-year high in the first quarter of 2019. Marquee names in retail, Nordstrom's, Kohl's, JCPenney's, they've all been under pressure already. And then you add on the impact of higher tariffs, the U.S. consumer perhaps pulling back. These are companies that employ hundreds of thousands of people. It's not out of the question that these new pressures tip one or more big retailers over. And that is just one such example of concentration impacting specific industries. I'm not sure that that's going to push the U.S. into a recession. We're currently growing well above trend, and the labor market not only shows no signs of slowing down, but if anything, is historically strong. Look, I I agree it will not push the United States into a recession, even if a big retailer, no matter how high profile it is, looks like it's edging into bankruptcy. That's true. But labor markets can be a lagging indicator. Look at the sentiment indicators across the world, including the United States, over the last several weeks. They've looked pretty poor. And unintended consequences, that's one of the things we worry about. For example, a further drop in global trade could push Europe into a downturn. And if there is one major economy where even a shallow recession could spiral into a political and financial crisis, given a lack of policy tools... It's arguably the euro area. Well, that sounds pretty grim. But actually, I believe that, if anything, our estimates of the direct effects are overstated. We base these direct effects assuming 100% of the tariffs get passed on to the end consumer. But there's a lot of other places that those costs can actually be borne. So, for example, they could be borne in the foreign exchange market. Currency 
prices can adjust, buffering some of the impact on the U.S. consumer. It could also be the case that margins could decline. The margins of U.S. companies that sell these products to U.S. consumers could go down, or the margins of the Chinese companies that manufacture these products could compress to try to buffer some of these costs. Fair enough, but the direct effects are often only part of the story. When economists worry about rising tariffs, the real concern is usually the indirect effects, the impact on business and consumer confidence, the impact of financial conditions tightening, etc. Remember, with 25% tariffs on all Chinese imports, if that is how the world evolves in a few weeks, the United States' overall trade tariff levels will be above the levels under the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act of the 1930s. Yeah, we hear a lot from economists about these second-order effects but they always strike me as being a little bit nebulous. There are even times where they don't appear. So let's look at the UK as a good example of that. After the Brexit vote, when the UK voted to exit the European Union, a lot of economists were forecasting business investment spending to collapse because businesses would have no confidence about the future direction of the UK economy. But that never actually played out. And then we think about what role these second-order effects might play in China, which is a command and control economy, meaning that the government plays a huge role in the business decisions that get made. Why would we think that confidence issues would play the same role in an economy where the government can sort of direct the outcome as it would in economies where, where the government isn't as involved? Look, in the case of the UK right after Brexit, the currency moved a lot. It acted as a shock absorber. It weakened a lot. It did help the United Kingdom avoid the worst of, uh, worst of the Brexit outcomes, including on business investment spending. But China does not have that escape valve. Unlike in the United Kingdom, in China, capital flows are limited. People and businesses cannot easily move money out of the country. This is referred to as a closed capital account, which means the currency cannot trade freely in the market. It trades in a band set by the government. It just cannot serve as the kind of adjustment mechanism, the kind of shock absorber that the pound did for the United Kingdom. Also remember that right now, global trade and manufacturing is already in a pretty poor shape, especially in China and Europe, with some signs that the US might be catching up. In some ways, I got to tell you, this is starting to look like the second half of 2015. Well, I think that's a bridge too far, Ajay. For context, there was a slowdown in global and U.S. growth in late 2015, and it is the case that concerns about trade and China played a role. But that's where the similarities between today and 2015 end. In 2015, the services economy was also under stress globally, and oil prices had dropped sharply. Remember that oil got as low as $26 a barrel at one point. Right now, services are doing just fine, and oil prices are over twice as high as they were then. Finally, the China concerns today are a little bit different. In 2015, we were worried about capital flight from China. That is, despite all the controls that China puts in place to keep money in the country, it looked like assets were leaving. This showed up in lower FX reserves. That means assets owned by China that are denominated in other currencies like dollars or euros. These FX reserves dropped by over $1 trillion in 2015. That's a major decline that raised all sorts of stability concerns. Right now, we see exactly no evidence of capital flight in China. Not yet, but that could change. And there's three points to consider here. The first is that their FX reserves are about $900 billion lower than at the start of 2015. Second, their domestic financial system is much larger than it was four years ago. And finally, they no longer have a current account surplus, 
unlike in 2015. Basically, across 2015, the rest of the world showed up at China's doorsteps with dollars. Their FX reserves were growing. And now they send out as many dollars as they take in. Well, how is that the case? How would China's current account have switched from being in a surplus to being flat? It still feels to me like the rest of the world buys a ton of Chinese goods. Yes, but that is the trade surplus you're talking about. The fact is that has been almost completely offset by one major factor. And this sounds a little funny, but Chinese citizens, Chinese tourists spending dollars abroad took out 275 to $300 billion of foreign currency from China last year. And that is a large part of the reason why, even though they run a significant trade surplus, their current account balance is flat now. Look, be that as it may, regardless of where the current account goes from here, investors certainly seem to believe that trade tensions are serious. Bonds, for example, are now fully pricing in a Fed cut in September. Stocks are down 6 to 7% from their peak. Yeah, we should talk about the stock market reaction. There's no doubt that the stock market is reacting to trade news. But I'm not sure that we should read too much into that volatility. So first of all, stocks are still up quite a bit for the year, over 10% on the S&P 500, which by itself would make for a pretty good year. More importantly, the stock market isn't the same thing as the economy. As I mentioned earlier, the U.S. is a pretty closed economy. But the stock market, particularly the S&P 500, is a bunch of multinational companies that does business everywhere across the globe. In fact, over a third of the revenue of the S&P 500 comes from overseas, making the stock market a much more global enterprise, actually, than the U.S. economy is on its own. So to me, it's no surprise that the markets are reacting to trade, but I'm not so sure that we should extrapolate from that to draw conclusions about the effect of trade on the actual U.S. economy. But it's not just the stock market. The bond markets, including the treasury market, which does not get any of its earnings from abroad, are also spooked. And the stock market can have feedback effects into the economy. We know for a fact that consumer spending tends to slow down significantly a few quarters after a big stock market correction. We are not that far off those levels as late as six months ago. Remember, we were at 2340 on the S&P 500 in December last year. Little had changed on the data front, but the Fed took it seriously enough that they completely backed off their hiking cycle. If trade wars keep escalating, risk premia rise, a big further equity sell-off is not out of the question, and that will feed through into a pullback by both U.S. businesses and consumers, especially if China retaliates, especially if people start worrying about tail risks becoming more a part of the baseline. All right, well, let's change gears with that because I want to touch on that on that uh, issue of Chinese retaliation. What can China really do to retaliate without hurting themselves? They only import about $160 billion worth of goods from the U.S. versus the about $550 billion that the U.S. imports from China. It seems to me like China has the weaker hand, and as a result, the ability for them to retaliate and thus drive escalation further from where we are today is actually pretty limited. China does have a weaker hand on trade, but the strength of their bargaining position is not limited to the extent of our exports to them. First, China can put lots of pressure on U.S. companies that have come to rely on supply chains in China, but also on Chinese consumers. These companies include Apple, McDonald's, a host of other names that are household names in the United States. China can limit these companies' access to supplies, can create regulatory hurdles, can limit access to Chinese consumers and businesses. 
Yeah, sure, all that sounds possible, but it doesn't really seem like that credible of a threat to me. Aren't the same companies you just named really big employers in China? Isn't creating all of these non-tariff barriers to trade just going to force these companies to develop new supply chains, hire workers in new countries? It sounds to me like China would be cutting off its nose to spite its face. You know, they also have another weird ace in the hole, what we keep calling rare earth metals, As you know, China controls the world's production of 17 obscure minerals that show up in every part of normal life. These are used in smartphones, in lasers, in MRI machines, in cars, in instrument panels, up and down manufacturing chains. If China imposes an embargo of rare earth metals exports to the US, like they threatened with Japan in 2010, it could arguably affect every auto plant, every aircraft assembly line, every smartphone and computer factory, that will matter. Well, that would be a big escalation. And I think what you're talking about hints at what might really be the the true issue underlying these trade tensions. I think trade is actually really just a proxy for deeper concerns about technology and ownership of some of the new frontier technologies that we think are going to drive economic growth over the next several decades. You know, I think the U.S. believes that intellectual property, especially on the technology front, is not protected adequately in China. The Chinese technology companies do not adhere to global norms of conduct regarding uh, patents and licenses. Um, And I think, you know, that could be why the U.S. is taking steps above and beyond trade tensions, like uh, blacklisting companies like Huawei in an effort to try to uh, protect its own technology investments. Huawei is a good flashpoint If you look at the Chinese press, for example, they are up in arms about how Huawei has been treated. And they will make the argument that the United States knows it's well behind on 5G technology, but Huawei dominates and is simply trying to slow China's rise, Chinese companies' rise in those key areas through unfair means. Okay, that's obviously one perspective on these tensions. And the U.S.'s perspective is that uh, that Huawei's uh, position may have been gained so- somewhat unfairly. But but either way, is the is the U.S. standing up to China on this issue really so bad from a U.S. standpoint? In the long run, if dominance over these frontier technologies is central to economic growth and to economic stability, then the U.S. taking a tougher stance on China on this front might actually be better. Look, the long run, how it plays out, it's, is not clear at all, I think. And in the short run, it is clear that there is a lot to lose in tech everywhere. For example, Huawei bought over $11 billion of components from U.S. firms in 2018. 150 plus Chinese companies are listed on US stock exchanges with a market cap of over a trillion dollars. More broadly, the technology sector has led the equity rally in the US for years. A big pullback will have effects on the whole stock market. And finally, global 5G deployment could slow as Chinese firms try to work around US restrictions. We could even have things like two separate 5G systems arise using different protocols. And that would not be a good thing for either economy, in my view. Well, there could be some near-term pain. But I think that you know the US has uh, what it considers to be very valid IP concerns regarding technology. And, and, and I still think that there's long-run benefits associated with, with trying to address those. There's also an interesting national security uh, angle to this, which is that 
Absent U.S. intervention, it was increasingly looking like Chinese technology would be forming the backbone of the internet. So, for example, equipment sold by Huawei uh, is both technologically ahead of s- some of its competitors and 20 to 30 percent cheaper. And so, slowly but surely, was being used to replace a lot of the a lot of the old equipment that 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 enables sort of information to traffic through the internet. And the U.S. has concerns about Chinese companies controlling that traffic and potentially being able to uh, you know to, to sort of you know either interfere in it or to see that information as it passes through as so you, you could see that 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 these these national security concerns also might be playing a dimension in this in these trade tensions okay say that's true but then that brings us back to a point you raised earlier this might have started under the guise of a trade war it's not staying as that otherwise it would, it would probably have been easier to resolve it is already slipping into a technology war and that's something that is a little more of a zero sum game in the eyes of both sets of policy makers it is something that is not likely to be resolved quickly china has very very ambitious plans on the technology front as presumably does the us and the longer that this trade slash technology war continues i would argue the greater the downside risk and the greater the negative impact on all economies and that includes the united states This sounds like an issue that's going to continue to evolve. Thanks for joining this episode of The Flipside. Clients can read our latest research, When Giants Collide, where we discuss the economic effects of rising tariffs on both the Chinese and United States economies, as well as 5G Leadership, where we discuss Huawei's role in the U.S.-China trade tensions, both available on Barclays Live. That's all for now from this Barclays podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on The Flipside. For more insights about this topic, clients can log into Barclays Live or find out more at barclays.com/ib.